we continue with Justice Thomas's concurring opinion in Students for Fair Admissions, Inc., v. Harvard College. Picking up with Part 3 of the Opinion. Part 3. Both experience and logic have vindicated the Constitution's colorblind rule and confirmed that the university's new narrative cannot stand. Despite the court's hope in Gruder that universities would voluntarily end their race-conscious programs and further the goal of racial equality, the opposite appears increasingly true. Harvard and UNC now forthrightly state that they racially discriminate when it comes to admitting students, arguing that such discrimination is consistent with this court's precedents. And they, along with today's dissenters, defend that discrimination as good. More broadly, it is becoming increasingly clear that discrimination on the basis of race, often packaged as affirmative action or equity programs, are based on the benighted notion that it is possible to tell when discrimination helps rather than hurts racial minorities. We cannot be guided by those who would desire less in our Constitution or by those who would desire more. The Constitution abhors classifications based on race, not only because those classifications can harm favored races or are based on illegitimate motives, but also because every time the government places citizens on racial registers and makes race relevant to the provision of burdens or benefits, it demeans us all. Section A. The Constitution's colorblind rule reflects one of the core principles upon which our nation was founded, that all men are created equal. Those words featured prominently in our Declaration of Independence and were inspired by a rich tradition of political thinkers, from Locke to Montesquieu, who considered equality to be the foundation of a just government. Several constitutions enacted by the newly independent states at the founding reflected this principle. For example, the Virginia Bill of Rights of 1776 explicitly affirmed that all men are by nature equally free and independent, and have certain inherent rights. The state constitutions of Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, and New Hampshire adopted similar language. And prominent founders publicly mused about the need for equality as the foundation for government. As Jefferson declared in his first inaugural address, the minority possess their equal rights, which equal law must protect. Our nation did not initially live up to the equality principle. The institution of slavery persisted for nearly a century, and the United States Constitution itself included several provisions acknowledging the practice. The period leading up to our second founding brought these flaws into bold relief, and encourage the nation to finally make good on the equality promise. As Lincoln recognized, the promise of equality extended to all people, including immigrants and blacks whose ancestors had taken no part in the original founding. 
Thus, in Lincoln's view, the natural rights enumerated in the Declaration of Independence extended to blacks as his equal, and the equal of every living man. As discussed above, the 14th Amendment reflected that vision, affirming that equality and racial discrimination cannot coexist. Under that amendment, the color of a person's skin is irrelevant to that individual's equal status as a citizen of this nation. To treat him differently on the basis of such a legally irrelevant trait is therefore a deviation from the equality principle and a constitutional injury. Of course, even the promise of the second founding took time to materialize. Seeking to perpetuate a segregationist system in the wake of the 14th Amendment's ratification, proponents urged a separate but equal regime. They met with initial success, ossifying the segregationist view for over a half-century. As this court said in Plessy, A statute which implies merely a legal distinction between the white and colored races, a distinction which is founded in the color of the two races, and which must always exist so long as white men are distinguished from the other race by color, has no tendency to destroy the legal equality of the two races or reestablish a state of involuntary servitude. Such a statement, of course, is precisely antithetical to the notion that all men, regardless of the color of their skin, are born equal and must be treated equally under the law. Only one member of the court adhered to the equality principle. Justice Harlan, standing alone in dissent, wrote, Our Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. In respect of civil rights, all citizens are equal before the law. Though Justice Harlan rightly predicted that Plessy would, in time, prove to be quite as pernicious as the decision made in the Dred Scott case, the Plessy rule persisted for over a half-century. While it remained in force, Jim Crow laws prohibiting blacks from entering or utilizing public facilities such as schools, libraries, restaurants, and theaters, sprang up across the South. This court rightly reversed course in Brown v. Board of Education. The Brown appellants, those challenging segregated schools, embraced the equality principle, arguing that a racial criterion is a constitutional irrelevance and is not saved from condemnation even though dictated by a sincere desire to avoid the possibility of violence or race friction. Embracing that view, the court held that in the field of public education, the doctrine of separate but equal has no place, and separate educational facilities are inherently unequal. Importantly, in reaching this conclusion, Brown did not rely on the particular qualities of the Kansas schools. The mere separation of students on the basis of race, the segregation complained of, constituted a constitutional injury. Just a few years later, the court's application of Brown 
made explicit what was already forcefully implied. Our decisions have foreclosed any possible contention that a statute or regulation fostering segregation in public facilities may stand consistently with the 14th Amendment. Today, our precedents place this principle beyond question. In assessing racial segregation during a race-motivated prison riot, for example, this court applied strict scrutiny without requiring an allegation of unequal treatment among the segregated facilities. The court today reaffirms the rule, stating that, following Brown, the time for making distinctions based on race had passed. What was wrong when the court decided Brown in 1954 cannot be right today. Rather, we must adhere to the promise of equality under the law declared by the Declaration of Independence and codified by the 14th Amendment. Section B. Respondents and the dissents argue that the university's race-conscious admissions programs ought to be permitted because they accomplish positive social goals. I would have thought that history had by now taught a greater humility when attempting to distinguish good from harmful uses of racial criteria. From the black codes to discriminatory and destructive social welfare programs, to discrimination by individual government actors, bigotry has reared its ugly head time and time again. Anyone who today thinks that some form of racial discrimination will prove helpful should thus tread cautiously, lest racial discriminators succeed, as they once did, in using such language to disguise more invidious motives. Arguments for the benefits of race-based solutions have proved pernicious in segregationist circles. Segregated universities once argued that race-based discrimination was needed to preserve harmony and peace and, at the same time, furnish equal education to both groups. And parties consistently attempted to convince the court that the time was not right to disrupt segregationist systems. Litigants have even gone so far as to offer straight-faced arguments that segregation has practical benefits. In fact, slaveholders once argued that slavery was a positive good that civilized blacks and elevated them in every dimension of life, and segregationists similarly asserted that segregation was not only benign, but good for black students. Indeed, if our history has taught us anything, it has taught us to beware of elites bearing racial theories. We cannot now blink reality to pretend, as the dissents urge, that affirmative action should be legally permissible merely because the experts assure us that it is good for black students. Though I do not doubt the sincerity of my dissenting colleagues' beliefs, experts and elites have been wrong before, and they may prove to be wrong again. In part for this reason, the 14th Amendment outlaws government-sanctioned racial discrimination of all types. The stakes are simply too high to gamble. 
Then, as now, the views that motivated Dred Scott and Plessy have not been confined to the past, and we must remain ever vigilant against all forms of racial discrimination. Section C. Even taking the desire to help on its face, what initially seems like aid may in reality be a burden, including for the very people it seeks to assist. Take, for example, the college admissions policies here. Affirmative action policies do nothing to increase the overall number of blacks and Hispanics able to access a college education. Rather, those racial policies simply redistribute individuals among institutions of higher learning, placing some into more competitive institutions than they otherwise would have attended. In doing so, those policies sort at least some blacks and Hispanics into environments where they are less likely to succeed academically relative to their peers. The resulting mismatch places many blacks and Hispanics who likely would have excelled at less elite schools in a position where underperformance is all but inevitable because they are less academically prepared than the white and Asian students with whom they must compete. It is self-evident why that is so. As anyone who has labored over an algebra textbook has undoubtedly discovered, academic advancement results from hard work and practice, not mere declaration. Simply treating students as though their grades put them at the top of their high school classes does nothing to enhance the performance level of those students or otherwise prepare them for competitive college environments. In fact, studies suggest that large racial preferences for black and Hispanic applicants have led to a disproportionately large share of those students receiving mediocre or poor grades once they arrive in competitive collegiate environments. Take science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, or STEM, fields, for example. Those students who receive a large admissions preference are more likely to drop out of STEM fields than similarly situated students who did not receive such a preference. Even if most minority students are able to meet the normal standards at the average range of colleges and universities, the systematic mismatching of minority students begun at the top can mean that such students are generally overmatched throughout all levels of higher education. These policies may harm even those who succeed academically. I have long believed that large racial preferences in college admissions stamp blacks and Hispanics with a badge of inferiority. They thus taint the accomplishments of all those who are admitted as a result of racial discrimination, as well as all those who are the same race as those admitted as a result of racial discrimination, because no one can distinguish those students from the ones whose race played a role in their admission. Consequently, when blacks and now Hispanics take positions in the highest places of government, industry, or academia, it is an open question whether their skin color played a part in their advancement. 
The question itself is the stigma, because either racial discrimination did play a role, in which case the person may be deemed otherwise unqualified, or it did not, in which case asking the question itself unfairly marks those who would succeed without discrimination. Yet, in the face of those problems, it seems increasingly clear that universities are focused on aesthetic solutions unlikely to help deserving members of minority groups. In fact, universities' affirmative action programs are a particularly poor use of such resources. To start, these programs are over-inclusive, providing the same admissions bump to a wealthy black applicant given every advantage in life as to a black applicant from a poor family with seemingly insurmountable barriers to overcome. In doing so, the programs may wind up helping the most well-off members of minority races without meaningfully assisting those who struggle with real hardship. Simultaneously, the programs risk continuing to ignore the academic underperformance of the purported beneficiaries of racial preferences and the racial stigma that those preferences generate. Rather than performing their academic mission, universities thus may seek only a facade. It is sufficient that the class looks right, even if it does not perform right. Section D. Finally, it is not even theoretically possible to help a certain racial group without causing harm to members of other racial groups. It should be obvious that every racial classification helps, in a narrow sense, some races and hurts others. And even purportedly benign race-based discrimination has secondary effects on members of other races. The anti-subordination view thus has never guided the court's analysis because whether a law relying upon racial taxonomy is benign or malign either turns on whose ox is gored or on distinctions found only in the eye of the beholder. Courts are not suited to the impossible task of determining which racially discriminatory programs are helping and which members of which races and whether those benefits outweigh the burdens thrust onto other racial groups. As the court's opinion today explains, the zero-sum nature of college admissions, where students compete for a finite member of seats in each school's entering class, aptly demonstrates the point. Petitioner here represents Asian Americans who allege that, at the margins, Asian applicants were denied admission because of their race. Yet Asian Americans can hardly be described as the beneficiaries of historical racial advantages. To the contrary, our nation's first immigration ban targeted the Chinese, in part based on worker resentment of the low wage rates accepted by Chinese workers. In subsequent years, strong anti-Asian sentiments in the Western states led to the adoption of many discriminatory laws at the state and local levels, similar to those aimed at blacks in the South, 
and segregation in public facilities, including schools, was quite common until after the Second World War. Indeed, this court even sanctioned this segregation, in the context of schools, no less. In Gong Lum v. Rice, 1927, the court held that a nine-year-old Chinese-American girl could be denied entry to a white school because she was a member of the Mongolian or yellow race. Also, following the Japanese attack on the U.S. Navy base at Pearl Harbor, Japanese Americans in the American West were evacuated and interned in relocation camps. Over 120,000 were removed to camps beginning in 1942, and the last camp that held Japanese Americans did not close until 1948. In the interim, this court endorsed the practice. See Korematsu v. United States, 1944. Given the history of discrimination against Asian Americans, especially their history with segregated schools, it seems particularly incongruous to suggest that a past history of segregationist policies towards blacks should be remedied at the expense of Asian American college applicants. But this problem is not limited to Asian Americans. More broadly, universities' discriminatory policies burden millions of applicants who are not responsible for the racial discrimination that sullied our nation's past. That is why, in the absence of special circumstances, the remedy for de jure segregation ordinarily should not include educational programs for students who were not in school or even alive during the period of segregation. Today's 17-year-olds, after all, did not live through the Jim Crow era, enact or enforce segregation laws, or take any action to oppress or enslave the victims of the past. Whatever their skin color, today's youth simply are not responsible for instituting this segregation of the 20th century, and they do not shoulder the moral debts of their ancestors. Our nation should not punish today's youth for the sins of the past. This opinion has been divided into multiple segments, and we've just come to the end of the fourth. But don't worry, next episode we will pick up exactly where this episode left off. And next episode will be the last segment in this opinion. Until then, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.